If you would, grab your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 49. Last week we pretty much finished up chapter 48 speaking of um, the blessing of Manasseh and Ephraim by Jacob. If you remember we spoke about how um, Jacob made a cross with his hands over Ephraim and Manasseh. At this point, we can see a foreshadowing of the one he, as Martin Luther explained it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21. He called this the great exchange, taking the wrath that was meant for people like me and you and taking that wrath and placing upon Jesus and the righteousness and the holiness of God. The righteousness of Jesus was placed upon sinners like you and me. That is called the redemption of sinners. Now we continue this week in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his son. Grab a Bible and follow along with me, beginning in chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. At this point, Jacob can feel his strength leaving him. His days are now not no longer days, hours, and minutes at this point. He's gathering his children to tell them prophecy, what so saith the Lord at this point. And it's good for him that he on his deathbed speaks over his children. Some of them will not like what they will hear and some of them will be blessed by what they hear. But this all reflects to the point that it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. Even though you may not receive a blessing from your father on this earth, one day you will stand before God in heaven and get your just desserts. Based on how you lived and how you lived your life before God, he will stand there and judge you according to the law and if he judges you according to the law it will cause shivers to run up and down your back then and it should now but grace grace wonderful grace like it says in lamentations his grace is new every morning thank you God that you don't judge me according to the law but only judging me according to what Jesus has done on my behalf amen somebody all right, y'all got to amen better than that if I'm going to preach here. Come on. Now we see here he gathers together his children, Jacob. And it's good for Jacob to do this because some of his sons need to hear a word that will carry them through life. Nothing like a voice of a father over a son that will cause them to either be broken or it will cause them to be walking in power. Jacob will speak over his children. Jacob at 137 years old at this point, he says... Assemble and listen. In verse number 2, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Jacob in this verse uses his, his earthly name, Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. I bore you with DNA. I passed on my genes to you. But also I will pass on a spiritual heritage to you by calling myself Israel. Children are more likely to go to church if the Father leads them. There's a lot of men who should have been here tonight who can lead their, lead their tribe and their clan or their family to church. It's more likely that a child will go to church, that the wife will go to church if the man, the head of the household, leads them to the cross. Ladies, if you are single tonight, don't get so wrapped up in a man and he leads you to the bedroom. Only get wrapped up in a man if he leads you to the altar. Amen. We'll just keep going. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Verse number 3, and now he lays it down about Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might 
and my first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. He describes Reuben at this point as his, 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 his humanity on display, his pride. He's proud of Reuben. Reuben, you're just like me, Jacob. You're preeminent in power and dignity. Everything that I have will be yours. In biblical times, the eldest, the ones who opens the wound, will receive a double portion. They will carry on the family name. They will be the one who receives the heritage. However, in verse 4, his own father describes Reuben, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it and he went up to my couch. If you remember, uh, 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 at least 40 years ago before this moment, before he speaks over Reuben, Reuben sinned grievously against his own father as he slept with his own concubine. He defiled his father, shaming him. All through the last few chapters, we don't hear much about it, but we know what happens. And now Reuben, for the last 40 years, has bore that shame. It was a family secret, basically. Not everybody knew it, but everybody knew it. You know what I mean? But at this point, Reuben now must bear the consequences of his sin. He is described as unstable as water. Water only takes the shape of the container that it's thrown in. Water is actually uh, wasted when it's poured out on the ground. At this point, he is unstable and he's wasted. Wasted potential is what Jacob calls him. Unstable. And you shall not have preeminence. It's certainly true of Reuben at this point, as later on, in about 430 years from this point, the tribe of Reuben, they'll basically fade away. They will not even go over to the side of Jordan to lay claim to any land. They'll actually become less prominent as Judah will take his place as the leading tribe of the children of Israel. Unstable because of what he did. Coming from Reuben, there will actually be people who rise up in his clan against Moses at one point. They're known for people who are rebels. People who lose potential. People who are, are, are rebellious people. I probably could relate to Reuben's clan more than any of the others. If it were not for grace, let's be honest. Amen. Ain't it easy to sit back and say, look at that family. Look at the whole family. From the father down into the grandchildren and the babies. and Just look at they're all messed up. Easily could have been you if it were not for grace. Amen. Here at Riverside, there's room for Rubens. I should know. You got one in the pulpit. Grace, grace. Amazing grace. Oh, that's so good to me. It's so sweet to me. If you're tired of hearing about grace, there's probably a church down the road that tell you all about the law and the rules and stuff. But here... I like to talk about how He forgives and shows grace and mercy. But at this point, there is grace and mercy because you see it here in this chapter. If there was no grace for Reuben, there wouldn't have been a blessing. you got to remember back in, uh, when Isaac prayed over Jacob and Esau, he didn't give a blessing to Esau at all. He gave it to Jacob. If there was totally casting out, there would be no blessing over Reuben. But he still blesses him. There are 12 blessings that we'll read about in this chapter. He still blessed Reuben even though he don't deserve it. Let that resonate in your soul. You don't deserve grace. 
Though you don't deserve grace, you don't merit it. Merit means to earn, to purchase, to buy. Once you earn grace, it's no longer grace, it's a wage. You earned it. If you can earn it, you deserve it. Tonight, you didn't earn grace. You don't deserve it. Boy, ain't that good. Ain't that good? That's just good to me. That Reuben still gets his, his, his father to bless him. You might read and say, well, it don't sound much like a blessing. No, this is a, a, a moment where he has to deal with his sin. Maybe over speaking over him that this would cause Reuben to live a holy life the rest of his days. In verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their words, swords. Simeon and Levi were the two who went up to Shechem and actually goes through the whole city, leveling the city. They did it because they were doing it with a righteous anger. How many times do we use God as a reason to hurt someone, to say they deserve it, and use God's name to do it? Whether you use the Bible as a machete to cut somebody up theologically or using the Bible and its laws to harm someone, even if they deserve it or not, here, Levi and Simeon certainly do that. Levi and Simeon, the Israelite nation will cause and see Simeon and Levi to fade as they go over the Jordan going into the Canaan land 430 years from now. In fact, Simeon would not have a lot. He will not even have a piece of land to call his own. And Levi certainly will not either. But we see grace here in these two tribes. One, one will be rebellious and Levi will actually become the, the deacons of the church of the tabernacle of God. They will serve there in the tabernacle serving God. The Levites would serve God and God would claim them. But Simeon, he let Simeon fade away. There we see grace once again. Grace, once again, in Levi. Levi not deserving anything. And God gives an inheritance to Levi. No, they don't own any property, but they found a place among the children of Israel while Simeon simply fades away. It's certainly true of us. We would fade away. We would become like dust and ashes if it were not for His grace. If He does not build the house, we build it in vain. If God does not set the cornerstone, what do we set it on? And it will truly fall. Here, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Their, their tendency was violence and anger. Verse 6, Let my soul come not into your counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willingness they hung strung, hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath is for it is cruel. It will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Certainly, Simeon and Levi were scattered. Their families were scattered within the nation. But still, there's a blessing for them. In the first three, we see almost like a grim speaking over the first few sons. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. However, Judah, as we have done a character study on him basically back a couple of chapters ago, this Judah who dealt shadily with Tamar, who actually was one who wanted to sell Joseph into slavery. It was his idea. Now Judah is being spoke over by Jacob in verse 8. Judah... Your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. As we unpack verse 8, Judah, your brother, shall praise you. The very name of Judah means praise. His name means to praise. Judah will actually lead the tribes of Israel into battle. They will be the first. And God ordained in the book of Deuteronomy how they were to line up. That God is so tedious on how we worship. He actually tells the tribes of Israel where to line up when they go out into battle. And the leading tribe to lead them into battle was Judah. Judah was to lead the battle. This is to tell you, Christian, whatever battle you're getting ready to walk into, walk into it with praise. Praising His holy name as the missiles fly and the bullets wing by your head. Praise His holy name for He is exalted and to be lifted up, to be high and lifted up because you remember from where He brought you before. This ain't the first time you ain't been able to pay your bills. This ain't the first time your body was wrecked with pain. This ain't the first time He needed to step in and deliver you. As you walk into the battlefield, make sure praise and Judah is in front of you as a banner lifting up His holy name and exalting Exalting him, lifting him up, the victor of your soul. He is the comforter, the great I am, the God who's delivered, the El Shaddai, the Almighty. This is our God. Amen. Somebody. Amen. So, whatever you face, don't cower. Don't cry. And if you must cry, let it be tears of joy because he will deliver. Let Judah lead the way. Judah, get in front. Judah, step out in front and praise His holy name. Exalt His name. Sing praises of His name. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Psalms 98 like we're going to do this Sunday. Sing. Praise His holy name. Talk about His great accomplishments, what He's done in the past. Pull out your resume file of God and what He has already done and how He has accomplished His good works and deeds through you, for you, for His glory. See, some of y'all need a fake file. Let's be honest, a fake file. You need to go home and get you a, a blank notebook and write down what God has done for you just this year. If you can go back to last year, write it down. The year before, that pivotal moment when you thought it was over and the darkness was caving in on you and you were done. Write about how He delivered you. Amen. That way when the darkness comes knocking at your door, and when anxiety comes upon your bed in the middle of the night, start taking his bony fingers and wrapping around your windpipe, choking you out, scaring you. Go back to the fire and pull and read about how he accomplished his good works and his will, keeping you and holding you, for he is faithful. If you're drowning today, well, good, he can walk on water. If you're in the pit, that's all right. He climb in the pit with you. If you're in the valley, his rod and his staff, they comfort. That's my God. Pull the fake file. Go back and look at what he's done. Go ahead and remind yourself. This is funny how we get spiritual amnesia. We forget from what heads he has brought us through and what he's going to take us to. We believe that he's like an old scooter that runs out of gas halfway. It ain't, it ain't like that. He's God. He's got endurance. He does not grow weary or tired. He does not need hearing aids. He don't need bifocals. He don't have a walker and a seeing eye dog. Our God is still on the throne. He's still mighty and he still reigns. Amen. So you see how I'm letting Judah go in front of me. If you're getting ready to be pushed to the back and they're getting ready to give you chemo, praise them all the way down the hall. If you're sitting in the machine and they're changing your kidneys and cleaning your blood with the dialysis, give Him praise. If you're on the brink of annihilation because of depression, praise Him in the darkness. 
If you're standing in the hall because every door is shut, praise Him in the hallway. For He is God and He reigns forevermore. Glory, we're going to have some church up in here. Glory to His name. Praise Him in the middle of the battle. Let Him lead you in. Glory to His holy name. Alright, let's keep going if we can. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Notice the brothers praise the one who praises God. They look at Judah and say, man, that's one who's going to praise God. If anybody's going to praise God, it's going to be Judah. From where hence God has brought Judah. He was a shady personality. He had a scrupulous past. He was, he was known by his, his past, his reputation. But God, but God, thank you Jesus for the but God that he's able to change a heart, change a mind, to undergird them and make them stable. Because Judah simply could have been unstable as water, but God undergird him and kept him and put a praise in his mouth. Notice the source of the praise doesn't come from Judah, but God puts the praise there. Glory to God. That's, that's something else we'll talk about later. But he said your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies that those that come against Judah as they lead those children of Israel into battle they take their enemies by the neck anytime a lion attacks a, a prey he goes for the jugular he goes for the neck if you want to attack your enemies, I'm not talking about physical here don't go to work tomorrow and just start choking your enemy I'm telling you if you want to go for the jugular you go with praise you praise God's holy name. The enemy loses all power over you. He can't make you do anything. An example. Everybody knows in my house my wife is a big scaredy cat. Huge scaredy cat. I'll stand behind a door and she'll come around. I'll go, boo! And she'll go, ah! And she'll run in place, stand in place in terror. How many deer do you see as they see a headlight or hear a horn? They'll freeze in terror. That's the work of the enemy. He'll say a word and you will freeze in terror. He tells you, I'm coming for you and your family. I'm coming for your health. I'm going to tear your house down. I'm going to take everything that you hold dear and we freeze in terror. If you want to steal the mouth of the enemy, do it with praise. You take him by the neck and say, Holy is the God of all creation, the God whom I serve, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, my God. Take him by the jugular and praise his holy name. Amen. Your father's son shall bow down before you. This prophecy was fulfilled in the story of David. David comes from the tribe of Judah. David the man after God's own heart is established there in the nation. The little shepherd boy who had no, he had no talents. He had no, no merit of his own. And God drew him from obscurity and placed him on the throne. And his own tribesmen bowed before him. Oh, but Jacob is not done here. And I do hope you see it. As he contends even more about Judah. The bloodline of Judah will continue. As he mentions in verse number 9, Judah is a lion club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Judah was speaking prophetically. He's speaking prophetically about a lion's cub. Have you ever heard they call him the lion of Judah? This is found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. As 
John is writing. He says, Behold, one who is the line of Judah. He's speaking of Jesus Christ himself. Coming from the line of Judah. His, has Jacob in his old age is laying on his bed. He's looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ will rise up from among the tribe of Judah and reconcile all things. If your eyes grow dim and you're laying on your deathbed, if you can't see past this moment and you're here in this reality, let your hope look forward. As you remember the cross behind you, look forward that Jesus, He is your blessed hope. You'll see here in a moment that, that Jacob loses his breath. In a moment, in the middle of blessing his children, he asked God to give him strength. And we'll get there. Let's keep reading. He stooped down and he crouches as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Who dares come across the Prince of Peace, the Lion of Judah, the Great I Am, is what he calls himself at least seven times in the book of John chapter number 8. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And verse number 10, as we unpack this, the scepter, scepter saying the royalty of Judah, saying that Jesus will have a scepter and will know no end. It will go on forever. That Jesus will reign. Yes, it began with David. But it goes on for an eternity. It will not pass from Him. Today there, there are many people who are nervous because Donald Trump's in the office. But they, they, they know maybe in a couple of uh, months or even a year or two that he might not be in office. And they'll gain some kind of, uh, some kind of momentum against their enemies. And then the, the pendulum will swing the other way in four more years. Back and forth, conservative, liberal, back and forth. Our nation fights back and forth. Some of them say there's a war on Christianity or our culture is at battle. And they swings back and forth. But let me assure you that Jesus is on the throne. There is no swinging back and forth. He reigns forevermore. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet until tribute comes to him. Now, in verse number 10, if you're looking at King James, the tribute also can be transcribed in the, in the, in the ESV. It will say Shiloh. You might see it in your footnotes. Until Shiloh comes, until tribute comes to him. Shiloh is a nickname for Jesus. Shiloh being a dwelling place for Jesus. So what, Ju Judah, uh, what Judah is describing is there going to be a person. Shiloh is a person and his name is Jesus. Amen. And the staff is passed to him and it will not pass anymore. He will reign forever. That's good to a Christian. That's good to somebody who's on good terms with the emperor of all creation. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Here we almost see an illusion as he describes Jesus Christ himself in the book of Revelation. We almost see him describing feet like brass, eyes like fire. 
Here he's describing Jesus Christ as he even talks about his garment being dipped in the blood of his enemies. This Jesus who is not just the Prince of Peace, but a conquering Jesus. A Jesus who comes and conquers all things for his glory. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea and he shall bear haven for ships and his, his border shall be at Sidon. Here Zebulun will be known later throughout history as a coastal tribal nation who will be, of course, mariners and those of the sorts. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. Issachar, Issachar will bear a burden later. In verse 15, he saw a resting place was good and the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. Issachar was one of the, the tribes that went into the, the, the promised land of Canaan land and did not get rid of the inhabitants of that land. They simply coexisted with the other tribes, the Ammonites and the Israelites and the Prezerites. They actually coexisted with them and eventually... Their enemies rose up and made them slaves. Let this resonate deep within your soul and your heart. You cannot coexist with sin. Those who God told you to slay. Yes, it's, it's written of a, a, an allegory of the Old Testament as God told the children of Israel to go into Canaan land and to wipe out the populace who were wicked and pagan. But they didn't. Issachar didn't. They simply coexisted with them. And eventually they became slaves to the inhabitants of the land. Oh, Christian, listen to me today. Is there pride in your life? Don't coexist with it. Don't simply manage your sin and allow it to live. And you functionally work with it. Slay that dragon. Oh, Christian, is there lust? Is there anger and unforgiveness in your heart that you allow in your heart because you believe it gives you fuel, it gives you strength? Yes, it does give you strength and eventually it will overpower you and control you and own you. Issachar was like a donkey who laid down and now was carrying a burden. You are carrying burdens today. Those children of God who are carrying the burdens today that God does not want you to carry. Slay the enemies of God. Get sin out of your life. Be killing sin as Jonathan Owen says or it will be killing you. Issachar is a strong donkey. But we see here, he bends his shoulder to bear the burdens and he becomes a servant. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be the judging tribe as we see that Samson will come out of this tribe and many others like Barak, they will come from this tribe. Dan will be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. Certainly the story of the story of Judges of Samson was a, a thorn in the sides of the Philistines. In fact, he pulled the house down with all the Philistine princes inside. Dan. And now we see that Jacob catches his breath as this is his deathbed prophecies. In the middle of all that, he loses his strength. In verse 18, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He cries for strength in the final moments of his life as he's speaking to his 12 children. Jacob doesn't dig down deep. He doesn't find his girth in himself. Surely you know the story of the Tar Heels. 
Whether you're a Duke fan or Carolina fan, it don't really matter. But the Tar Heels, are, they get their name from Chapel Hill whenever the northern units would come down and fight in the Confederates. They were noticing how the Carolinians there on Chapel Hill would stand firm and fight with their heels planted as if they had tar on their heels. They would not run or retreat. They fought tooth and nail. Where did they get that kind of courage? Where do you get the strength to carry on? Even if your body fades and your mind fades and your strength is gone, you'll find faith and hope and strength and your salvation. Here, Jacob says, my hope and salvation. I'll wait for you, O Lord. Then he continues in verse 19, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad is another name for raider in the Hebrew. That's why he's doing a, a wordplay on Gad. That Gad was to be a furious tribe that fights. They're a troop that wants to battle. And he says there'll be ones that fight and they'll be raided and there'll be a fierce battling tribe. Asher shall be rich and shall yield many delicacies. He's saying that Asher's tribe will be known for delicacies. While corn is plentiful, that the delicacies of those things that are found in princes' palaces are rare. He's saying that Asher will have a hand on those. Nephitali will be a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Coming from Nephitali will be those that are beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. And now he begins in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Joseph being the, the, redeeming, the redeeming factor in his family, that his fruit will hang low, that those who are small can pluck from the tree and eat. Thank you, God, for always making a way when there seems to be no way. And we see it here in Joseph that his branches hang low. His branches are low enough that it shades his family there in Egypt. In verse 23, Jacob continues to explain, The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the Almighty One of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. As much as he boasts on his son Joseph, he says he was made strong by the mighty one of Israel. Even though Joseph is in Egypt, he could have waited. He could have simply assimilated to the culture and faded into oblivion. But God was with him and made him strong. His enemies attacked him. I'm sure Joseph had within the Egyptian court those who were bitter and angry and jealous of him. But God kept him stern and strong. If you have people in your life who are aiming at your heart, who wants to tear you down and hurt you and harm you, I'll put it like my favorite theologian, my wife said. She asked me, Kevin, how do you sleep at night People knowing people don't like you? And I said, with the fan on. It don't matter. When God is on the throne, it don't matter. He keeps me. He holds me. He holds me in perfect peace if my mind is kept on Him. Amen, somebody. He says, yet his bows remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Bear with me. We're almost done. We're going to get to this chapter. By the God of your Father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you. With blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast of the womb. Blessings of your Father. Almighty, beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who set apart from his brothers. 
Here we see, we see the analogy of Jesus. Joseph was the redeeming factor of his family. And you heard me say it earlier, we're a family. And we're not drawn together here because of my charisma or our denomination. We don't come to this church because it's the closest one to our house. We don't, we, don't, we don't just come here for the sake of coming here and rubbing elbows with other people like a country club. We're drawn together as a family because of one thing and His name is Jesus. And you see the analogy here that we are beyond the blessings of our parents, the blessings of our Father, the bounties of everlasting hills. Much like Joseph was the head of this family now. Just like the head of this church is not the preacher. It's not the deacons and the deacon board, the ladies auxiliary, the men's meeting. It's not the Sunday school or the Sunday school teachers. It's not our conference or the state conference. The head of this church is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And then he finishes with verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring to prey, and in the evening, dividing to spoil. Benjamin, in verse 27, is described as a wolf. Benjamin, later, he will certainly will be a ravenous wolf as he devours those. He was, he, this is a tribe of left-handed slingshotters later on. They'll rise up and it will be known in this family that you're just left-handed. They call them Southpaws in certain parts of the world. That these are left-handed warriors. It was unheard of in this time, in biblical times, to be left-handed as dominantly right hand is the one of power and strength. But now we see the warriors of Benjamin will be left-handed slingshotters and they will be very accurate with their slingshots. In fact, later there will be a part where one of the Benjaminites will actually go to a king and he will have a sword slid up his wrist and he will jast it into the belly of an evil oppressor setting those people free because God always provides a redeemer. And it just so happens our Redeemer is not Donald Trump. Ted Cruz. It's not our local sheriff. And it's not your preacher. His name is Jesus. Amen. At this point, and we'll finish up in verse 28, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is their father that said to them as he blessed them, blessed each one, the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to him, I am to be gathered with my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite. At this point, Jacob makes sure his children know to not assimilate into the land of Egypt. That there's a homeland, a homeland of Canaan. And he makes them swear that they will bury him there. That they will take his body and lay it there. Because they'll forget. So soon when Jacob closes his eyes, they must make preparation and go and bury him where he asked. Church, let us not forget this is not our home. That we're only passing through. Yes, this body may fall into dust here. But my God is so good as He reaps my soul, He'll come back and reap my body. Oh, that's so good to me that He won't even just leave my body here. That He will rise me up and in corruption and He will put my spirit and my body back together and I will be like Christ, united forever with a new body in heaven. 
in the cave that is in the field, verse 30, east of Moran, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is brought from the Hittites. Then Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and gathered to his people. In verse 33, if you are blessed enough to have a deathbed, a deathbed where you just lay there and you, you're able to say the goodbye to people, if God is, is kind enough to let you do that, then you need to live for that moment. However, not everybody here is going to have a deathbed moment. You might die on the way home today. You might veer off the highway. You might have an aneurysm walking from the mailbox to your house. It's a point for man wants to die, but you need to live in that moment. In light of that moment, when you draw your final breath, whether you get to say goodbye to your family and friends and loved ones and even your enemies, it don't matter. Live for that moment when your final breath is taken from you and you're in the presence of God. Jacob lived for this moment. He tells him how to prepare his burial. He tells each child what's expected of them. Do you? Do you live in the light of the moment when you breathe no more? When you're standing on the cliff of eternity and you see God face to face. Preacher, you're morbid. No, it just so happens here in our culture. We're so removed from death. Slaughterhouses kill our animals and bring them to the, 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 the market and we don't even see the blood. When you kill over and you die, they call a funeral home guy and he'll come and they don't even see that. We're so removed. We're mortal. We will die and we will stand before God. And you will give an account for your life. Have you lived in such a way that you don't have to hang your head low? And if you still have to hang your head low, know that He's the lifter of your head and He shows grace. Amen. Let us bow our heads. Father, thank You for this opportunity to stand before Your mighty and great people.